Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval terms apply placing a trade shouldn't be complicated it should be smooth as butter the fidelity app makes investing easy with zero commission u.s stock and etf trades no account minimums and fractional shares trading fidelity where nothing comes between you and the trade that's smooth download our app free from the app store or google play Sell orders are subject to an activity assessment fee from $0.01 cent to $0.03 cents per $1,000 of principal. No account minimums apply to retail brokerage accounts only. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE SIPC. Oh, hey. Hi. It's that mechanical pencil that's out of lead. Oh, wait. Click, click. Wait. Oh, look. There you go. Alley Ward. I hope you're hungry for a small bite-sized version of Indigenous cooking. So this is an episode of Smologies, and Smologies are shorter edited episodes of longer full-length episodes, but we cut out all the swear words and we make it safe for all ages. If you're looking for the full version, it's linked right in the show notes, but if you're here for Smologies, you're in the right place. This episode's great. It's just a wonderful romp through time and identity and history and culture and food with someone who you may know as Kitchen Online, Indigenous Digital Kitchen, Online Cooking Lessons, Kitchen. Can you dig it? You can. So this guest is of both Pagani Blackfeet and Cherokee heritage and is based on the 1.5 million acre Blackfeet reservation in northwestern Montana. I was so excited to get to know her and I was nervous because she's very cool and I had a bunch of questions and I didn't want to be annoying. And you know what? After all that worrying, I was annoying and I did ask embarrassing questions, but she rolled with it because she's awesome and that's what I'm here for. Okay, but let's get on with it. Indigenous cuisinology, which is the study of a culture through its food. And indigenous comes from a Latin root for indigenous, which is sprung from the land or native. You're going to love her. You're going to love her work so much. Okay, so belly up, stuff a napkin into your collar, boy howdy. Get hungry for stories involving fallen stars, mushroom dibs, food sovereignty, squash, acorns, flower bulbs, bison, the wildest of rices, meditations on fry bread, and how cooking with native foods isn't part of a past, but an essential aspect of the future. With environmental scientist, engineer, cooking show host, and advocate, Mariah Gladstone. Mariah Gladstone, she, her. And now you're based in Northwest Montana? Yep. I'm on the Blackfeet Reservation, just south of the Canadian border. I'm about five minutes outside the eastern entrance to Glacier National Park. Yeah. Okay. You know, when you're coming up with recipes, are you really kind of basing it on, rather than maybe hyper-local, are you looking for seasonal types of foods that might be traditional to whatever season is coming up? Or how, how do you plan your the recipes that you're going to film and shoot and disseminate? That's a great question. Yeah, it, it's a combination of regional things, especially when I'm doing really old or ancestral recipes, things that would have been made 
very similar to the way that I'm showcasing them. And in that case, of course, you're looking for a whole bunch of ingredients that would have been found in the same area. We're thinking of foods that are in season right now. So of course, it is the time of winter squashes. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. (laughs) And it's the time of pumpkins. And it's hunting season. And there's all of these wonderful foods that are available now. It's after ricing. So people have fresh parched wild rice. And it's fun to incorporate those all at the same time, even though now, of course, we have ways of preserving foods. So I have picked berries from August, but I can pull them out at any time and use them for things because I have them in the freezer or I have them dehydrated or whatever that may be. But also I recognize, you know, indigenous people are living in the 21st century with everyone else. And we have always used the tools that we have access to. And right now, Maybe that's a big chest freezer. Maybe that's an Instapot. (laughs) Maybe that is a coffee grinder that can blend sunflower seeds into flour at lightning speed. P.S. While we recorded this, I was like, oh, what recipe uses sunflower butter? So I did want to interrupt her. But if your stomach just gurgled in curiosity, I looked it up. She has a sunflower butter popcorn recipe that involves honey and maple syrup and the note that this stuff is addictive. I'm willing to take the risk. Whatever it is, We are able to recognize that ancestral wisdom and the indigenous brilliance of agriculture or harvesting or foraging or hunting or whatever it may be, along with our presence in this day. You mentioned a little bit about how the diets veered off based on what was available and cheaper, less healthy foods. People hear indigenous food and they think, fry bread. Does that just make you want to rage ever, to be honest? Side note, fry bread is this pillowy, oil-bathed, white flour comfort food, and it's used as a taco base or even as like this honey-drizzled dessert, but it's been in the hot seat. So how does an expert feel about its place on the food landscape? You know, as it's funny because fry bread, of course, came from a period of time where Native people were dependent on government rations, which were like shelf-stable, processed boxes of food that were distributed to households. And they weren't things we recognized as food. So we made something out of them because survival. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's that's what where fry bread came from. So I will say that fry bread is a traditional food in that it's part of our history. And it got us through a period of time that would have otherwise meant starvation. Mm-hmm. But... There is a tendency of oppressed people to mistake our oppression for our culture. And I think that's kind of what people do with fry bread um, Mm -hmm. or commodity cheese or whatever thing that has become part of these subsidized food systems. Um, And so I I don't spend a lot of time trashing fry bread. So rather than focusing on all this negative stuff, we just focus on all of the resources that we do have the things that we do have access to, whether it be in our grocery stores or in our communities or in the lands that we can forage or the things that we can grow in our soils, whatever it may be, those are the things that I focus on and really tie it all back to the incredible wisdom that has put those things in place that has helped us recognize, you know, Corn, corn's edible, right? But the ways in which we eat corn now are not traditionally how they were eaten. Our ancestors recognized that corn had to be treated with this process of nishtamalization. What is it? 
Nixtamalization. It's called nixtamalization, and it comes from the indigenous Nahuatl portmanteau, meaning lime ashes and tamal for corn dough. So nixtamalization. This process of treating corn with a highly alkaline solution that you make from adding wood ash to water, and it chemically dissolves the hull of the corn, and that transforms the bound niacin into free niacin. And you have amazing indigenous chemistry happening while also recognizing that you've now added way more nutritional value to the corn and the wood ash has added calcium, which is way more absorbable than the calcium in dairy, for example. Mm. And all of that has taken generations of indigenous knowledge to put in place. And when you are finding out about how food was processed and cooked and used, what kind of sources do you usually go for? Are you like pouring through biochemistry journals? And what is it like when you when you find out something new that you you hadn't known before? Oh, it's it's funny because I'm of course I'm living on the Blackfeet Reservation, so I have cultural connections here. I have indigenous botanists that are super informed and have a lot of information themselves. But I also, I'm a graduate student and I can occasionally approach things from an academic side. Sometimes I get information just by reaching out to native chefs and asking questions, especially if it's from a community that I don't have knowledge of. So um, if you're talking with plant folks, they might say, oh yeah, this plant is edible. Great. What part of the plant? Mm-hmm. Um, when do you <laughs> harvest it? You know, camas roots, for example, camas bulbs are edible. What are these? Okay, I'd never heard of them, but they are plant friends in the asparagus family. And their flowers sometimes carpet whole beautiful meadows with these lilac or white or deep violet blooms. And then the root, the bulb, tastes like a freaking baked pear. So go find them just by blossom spotting, right? No. But... It is more traditional for people to wait until after they've bloomed, which makes them a little bit harder to identify. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you also have to know what it could be mistaken as, like death camas, which is a white flower versus a blue flower. But if they're not blooming when you're harvesting them, that's hard to tell. And then you have to know, of course, how to cook it. And for camas, it's really, really high in inulin. Okay, inulin is a fiber, and I'm going to read between her lines here and break the windy news. She's talking farts, people. Delicious, creamy, sweet inulin has a price, and it's ripping hot once for days. Mm -hmm. And so you have to basically slow cook these or roast these for an extended amount of time. And traditionally, that was done in a big pit underground, and they'd be roasted for up to 48 hours until basically the sugars are caramelizing and all the inulin's been processed down so your body can digest it. That's not something that it says if you're like, camas bulbs are edible, right? Mm. <laughs> um, so all of that information has to go along with it or else the resource is incomplete. You know, just knowing that something is edible doesn't necessarily help as a resource all the time because sometimes it, it can be dangerous. So for example, choke cherries are edible, but the pits in choke cherries contain cyanide. But the pits were traditionally eaten by Blackfeet and Lakota and other people that have traditionally eaten choke cherries because we took choke cherries, smashed them with a rock in their entirety, 
into little choke cherry pancakes, right? We basically made little fruit patties and mm-hmm. then we dried them until they were dehydrated. And then now they're dried out. They're very packable. They keep for a long time. But that drying process neutralizes the cyanide in them. So you oh, can wow. eat the pits because now they've been smashed into oblivion and also the cyanide is not going to harm you. Wow. Um, what about some some myths that you commonly encounter that you love to to bust? Like, is it flimflam that the North American indigenous diet is mostly acorns? It's not all acorns, maybe. Acorns. Acorns are all edible. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I'm, I was going to say, um, I mean, I I don't come from, I don't come from a, any acorn eating people. That sounds weird. Okay, so I grew up in California, and its golden foothills are studded with oak trees. I love them so much. I grew up collecting acorns for school projects. So I thought it was a national teaching that indigenous foods were all acorn-based. So that must be a myth. Turns out it's incredibly regional, of course. Like, durr, Ward. Did I embarrass myself? Sure, a little bit. So go text your crush, cut some bangs. Ask the questions to the stuff you don't know. That's really interesting to me because I think that obviously in Montana, so much of our education is buffalo, bison. Mm-hmm. And then on the East Coast, where my partner's from, um, he's Haudenosaunee, uh, Onondaga from New York. And so a lot of their discussions about indigenous food are about the three sisters, which is, of course, corn, beans, and squash coming from a very different agricultural community, um, which Mm -hmm. is similar to how my mom's people, Cherokee, traditionally grew food as well. Up in the Great Lakes region, it's probably all focused about wild rice and ricing culture. And then, you know, down in the Southwest, you get more corn, beans, and squash, but also there's sunflowers all over that people have incorporated as, and bread specifically to have very large edible seeds and cactuses. I feel like mm-hmm. cactuses don't get talked a lot about unless you're in Mexico, in which case everyone's like, oh yeah, nopales. But then we have prickly pear cacti in Montana and those produce the same edible fruit. And that is a treat for Blackfeet people. It's so regional. Mm-hmm. And that's the fun part of it. I don't know if people have a lot of misconceptions about native food. I think probably most people think potatoes came from Ireland, for example, <laughs> and that's a big South American indigenous food. Regardless of your type of potatoes, the Incan Empire had a massive agricultural knowledge about potatoes, and there were and still are thousands of varieties of potatoes. Um, tomatoes, of course, are an indigenous food. Italians didn't have tomatoes until they were traded back to Italy with Columbus and future generations of folks. I can make spaghetti. Um, okay, so we have questions from listeners, if I may ask them. Yes. Okay, but before we do, we always shout out a cause of the ologist choosing, and this is for FAST Blackfeet. It's Food Access and Sustainability Team, which is a group of community leaders and health professionals and educators within the Blackfeet Nation who are dedicated to identifying food insecurity in their community— 
offering effective solutions related to access to healthy food and nutrition education and addressing food sovereignty. And so this week, the donation went specifically to them. I'm so stoked that this podcast and the community of folks were able to make that possible, along with sponsors of the show, who I genuinely like. And then we take some of that money and we give it away. Ologies with Allie Ward is sponsored by Squarespace, and Squarespace has been part of my daily life for the last seven and a half years. Ologies might not exist without Squarespace. I had to make a website for this, and I was so intimidated. It took me over a year, and then one night I was like, you know what? I've heard about Squarespace. I'm going to try it, and now look at us. If you don't think you need a website, guess what? You probably do, especially if you're an academic. Have some place where all your papers are. People can contact you. Anyway, they have so many tools for entrepreneurs. They have Fluid Engine, which is this kind of next generation website design system. It's from Squarespace. It's drag and drop technology. You can use it on desktop or mobile. They also have an asset library so you can manage all of your files from this central hub and then you can use them across the whole platform. They have professional website templates. They have designs for every category, every use case, no matter what you need a website for. Get a website, start your business. Look, it worked for me. Ding. So head to squarespace.com for a free trial. And then when you're ready to launch, go to squarespace.com slash ologies to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. You could do it. You could do it. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. So is my brain. Here's a thought experiment. Think of all the time that you spend just scrolling on things or not doing the things you want to do. I know time is the most valuable thing that you have. Boy, let me tell you, I had to learn this over time. You know what helped? Therapy. Therapy can help you figure out what matters most to you and how to prioritize it so that you like your life more. And where I learned that was better help. Because yes, I have been a client. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, I know how hard it is to get started. BetterHelp makes it very easy. It's entirely online. It's convenient. It's flexible. You take a quick questionnaire. They match you with a therapist. Instead of just Googling and trying to find someone with an opening, BetterHelp makes it very accessible. And I like that. It's also more affordable than traditional therapy. And you can chat. You can text. You can do video calls. You can do phone calls. For some reason, you are not vibing with your therapist. You can switch at any time. No extra cost. No drama. So let me tell you. Time is precious. Figure out where you want to spend yours. And you can learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash ologies today to get 10% off your first month. So that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash ologies. It's about time. Okay, your questions. Dirty Dan wants to know, what role do mushrooms play typically in indigenous foods? Oh, that's such a good question. It depends so much regionally, but here... It's interesting because, you know, as I said, I'm up in Montana. And so we have, we're really fortunate we have morels that grow, especially in our old burnt forests. And so that's a really fun activity for folks to go out and do is harvest morels a few years after fires come through. But we also have puffballs. And puffballs are, of course, these big mushrooms that grow eh, mostly out on the prairies, but there is actually a story that goes back that talks about a earth woman marrying a sky man. And when she came back down to earth and gave birth, there was a rule that her baby wasn't supposed to touch the ground for five days. And on the fifth day, his grandma, the girl's mother, was watching the baby and she wasn't really watching him that well. And Mm -hmm. so the mom came back into the lodge and 
was looking for her baby and she's oh he's under that blanket and she lifted up the blanket and instead of a baby being there it was a puffball and the baby had been turned into a puffball and that's how we got puffballs and so now on some blackfeet painted lodge designs you'll see these circles and they're bright white circles on a colorful background and real quick so a lodge is what most non-natives generally see and call a teepee although a Teepee is a word from a different nation, the Dakota folks. Now, in Blackfeet language, it would be called a nyatawi or a lodge. But some individuals' designs look like a band along the bottom with this graphic row of big polka dots. But they're puffballs. They're mushrooms is what they represent. And of course, there's so many other indigenous peoples with different types of mushrooms. But we definitely have recognized mushrooms as part of traditional diets. I was just reading a Cherokee story from my mom's people the other day about a type of mushroom. And our Cherokee stories tell us, they say, once you see the mushroom, it will stop growing. But if you put a stick through it, then it will keep growing. But it was interesting because I was reading this translation of this Cherokee text. And they also said, in other words, If you see a mushroom with a stick through it, it means it's already been claimed and you have to leave it alone. But if it doesn't have a stick through it, then you can claim it and you can come back when it's ready to harvest. Oh, okay. I see what you did there. And so I was like, oh, okay, that makes sense. But it's funny because they translated what that principle was. It was like, Mm -hmm. we don't actually think that mushroom's going to stop growing. (laughs) This is just how you claim it. But like, that's what the story is. And that's why it relates. And so it's cool, but it's a delicacy. And then they talked about how to cook it up and, you know, fry it in a little bit of animal fat and um, bread it with a little bit of cornmeal or something. So um, there's definitely traditional stories with uh, fungi. That's wonderful to think of paintings of just big puffballs. I thought this was a great question. This is from Stephanie Shirley, who is a first-time question asker. And Danae, um, how do you propose natives decolonizing our diet when most reservations are food deserts and lack resources to fresh fruits and vegetables and planting crops in a drought is costly in an already economically disadvantaged community? So um, food deserts, of course, are it's a term used by the USDA to define people's distance from a place where they can buy food, like a grocery store. Um, And of course, grocery stores on reservations have their own challenges within the food distribution system, including, of course, the last mile transport costs. So a lot of high premiums added to fresh foods, like fruits and vegetables, for example. So that in itself can be a challenge to navigate. That said, there are a lot of foods that folks likely do have within their communities. Wherever you're living, whether it's a true desert or not, um, there there are foods that people have been eating there for thousands of years. And so sometimes it's just learning some of the plants in your area, even if it's just little plants that you know that you can harvest and dry and make tea out of later. That's something that can bring you connection to your landscape. So for example, here... We have yarrow, which is a great plant, grows all over the Northern Hemisphere, has a flavor profile similar to tarragon, so it could be used as a spice, or it can be dried and made into a tea. Lots of people grow in places that have wild mint. That's something to know. You learn to identify whatever wild onions are in your area. There's so many types of wild onions that grow all around. 
Um, if you have any types of fruit trees, you know, berries, obviously, nut trees, whether they're black walnuts or hickory nuts, those nice, beautiful shelled tree nuts like pecans, those are all indigenous foods, acorns, learn how to process them. So there's foods that are out there. And I love folks getting out and just connecting more with our landscapes, learning to identify what plants in your area and what you can do with them, how to prepare them. So for more on that, you can see the Foraging Ecology episode with Alexis Nelson, a.k.a. Black Forager. I would just say that if you're lucky enough to know someone that has traditional medicinal or botanical knowledge, even if it's just someone that knows a few plants in your area, go learn those plants. Go out with them and then share that information. And um, last listener question we got from a few people, Allie Vessels, Concetta Gibson, Allie V, Elise Hickman. Um, and this is for non-Native folks. Cross-cultural implications. How do non-Indigenous friends do right by our Indigenous friends when making and sharing your incredible food? Are there appropriation concerns we should consider? How do you feel is the best way for non-Natives to, to appreciate and to participate in Indigenous food? Yeah, that's a good question. So I reiterate, learn about your plants. And that's just me as an ecologist thinking Mm -hmm. about, um, you know, how do you connect with your landscape? Whenever you get outside and you just learn a little bit more about those spaces, it can help inherently build that connection. If you go out berry picking, you also see the birds that are out there picking berries with you, yelling angrily maybe, (laughs) Um, you might run into a bear, right? But you understand all of those other creatures that are part of that connection with the berries too. And if something threatens the berries, you suddenly know that it's not just your berry patch that's being threatened, but you know all of the other beings that rely on that too. And so you're more inclined to take care of that because of your vested interest in it. Last questions I always ask are um, what your favorite thing about your job is. I get to spend all of my time educating and teaching and working with foods, whether that be as a contractor that's developing educational materials, whether that be teaching cooking classes or being in the community, teaching folks how to harvest native plants, whatever it is, I, I get to grow and harvest and hunt a lot of food. And that, that also helps keep me fed, but mm-hmm. with delicious, healthy things from here. There is new and exciting things every day. And sometimes I get frustrated trying to learn how to use video editing software and uh-huh. trying to clean my kitchen and all of the other fun things. But honestly, it's, it is the most fun and rewarding thing I could be doing. Uh-huh. So ask generous people not genius questions and just do it out of respect and curiosity and everyone will walk away better for it. So huge, huge thank you to Mariah Gladstone. I'm a giant fan of her and Indigi Kitchen. Um, for more of Mariah's work, you can go to indigikitchen.com. She's at indigikitchen on Instagram and Mariah Gladstone on Twitter and Instagram. Um, we are at ologies on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Ellie Ward with one L on both. Also linked is alleyward.com slash smologies, which has dozens more 
kids safe and shorter episodes that you can blaze through. And thank you, Mercedes Maitland of Maitland Audio and Jared Sleeper of Mind Jam Media for editing those as well as Zeke Rodriguez-Thomas. And since we like to keep things small around here, the rest of the credits are in the show notes. And if you stick around until the end of the episode, I give you a piece of advice. And listen, I get it. Mornings are hectic. They're busy. Everyone's fighting to get out the door. You're forgetting stuff. And so I like to fill my water bottle the night before. That way it's not the thing that I go, "Uh, forget it. I have it filled and I grab it out the door. You can do it the night before. You can even put ice in it. And if it's an insulated bottle, it stays cool. So I do that on days when I know I have busy mornings. I hope that helps. Okay, bye-bye. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car or a house. It's the four wheels that get you where you're going and the four walls that welcome you home. When you combine auto and home insurance with Amica, we'll help protect it all. And the more you cover, the more you can save. Amica, empathy is our best policy. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. 